0: Everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by mentioning a wonderful new history festival that's taking place at Harvington Hall in Worcestershire from the 25th to the 30th of July. Against the backdrop of this stunning moated Elizabethan Manor House, 16 medieval and Tudor historians will give a series of talks over the six days. For more information and to book your tickets, head over to Harvington Hall's website. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss out on an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Now is actually a great time to join, because you'll receive two months free when you pledge annually before the 30th of June 2023. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to 138 exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about her experience of owning and caring for a Tudor house is Brigitte Webster. Brigitte is a qualified teacher of home economics and history, making her the perfect accomplished Tudor housewife in modern-day Britain. As a competent and experienced cook with a deep passion for Tudor history, she has fully immersed herself in archaeological, experimental cookery, which also motivated her to grow period vegetables, herbs, and fruits to achieve the most authentic end results. In 2019, Brigitte and her husband bought a small Tudor manor house that had escaped ruthless modernization. This will form the hub of their Tudor and 17th century experience, where guests can enjoy hospitality in a place for like-minded people, who can come together and embrace a stepping back into culinary Tudor England. Brigitte has appeared on Professor Susanna Lipscomb's TV series Walking Tudor England and is a regular contributor to the magazine Tudor Places. She also appears in popular history podcasts. In 2019, Brigitte was a guest speaker at the first TudorCon exposition in Pennsylvania. The launch of her new book, Eating with the Tudors, will be complemented by regular Tudor cookery videos with recipes from the book She's currently working on her next book, A Tudor Garden in Your Backyard, which is scheduled for publication in 2025. Without further ado, let's dive into this conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors. How are you, Brigitte?
1: Well, hello, um, and thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm great. And I am really, really delighted to be on your podcast again. (laughs) Yes.
0: I'm so happy that you're back on the show. So it's been a little while since we last chatted. So would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, of
1: course. Well, I have recently started to introduce myself as the perfect to the housewife in a modern society. And uh, even it was only meant to be a joke. It's actually very accurate, as strange as it might sound. But let me quickly elaborate uh, for a bit of clarification. Uh, I was educated in a rather traditional approach back in the early 80s that equipped me with all sorts of skill sets. A a Tudor lady of the house needed like cooking, sewing, embroidery, looking after children, the elderly, the sick, basket-waving, gardening, And uh, they also tried music lessons, uh, which I failed miserably. But uh, just like Thomas Moore's taught us, I was lucky to also receive a good academic education. And so I became a teacher for various subjects, including history, cookery and household management. Well, the Tudor housewife imperfection.
0: That sounds wonderful and you I know you've got lots of skills and lots of knowledge so I'm delighted to have you back with us. So we're we're here to talk a little bit about your beautiful beautiful house. And for you to tell us a little bit about the experience of actually owning an historic property. So maybe let's start with you just telling us a little bit about the history of the Old Hall. Yeah, I'd love to. Obviously, a house
1: that has been standing for 500 years has quite a long history. But I'm trying to condense the real gems of it uh, as much as I can. Now, the story of our home is... Representative of many Tudor buildings in the UK. It describes the personal journey of the ups and downs of her residents who constantly try to adapt to new forms and challenges in order to pull through rough times. And it is therefore quite essentially a a tragic tale of survival and struggle mixed in with glimpses of hope, love, and moments of good fortune. And our old hall, as it's known now, (laughs) As indeed, all houses by that name started life with a proper name. And ours was named after the hamlet it represents, which is Barnum Broom. So it was Barnum Broom Manor. And she was built around 1500 by this uh, knight called Sir Edward Chamberlain, who was the son of a Yorkist supporter. Uh, Sir Robert Chamberlain, who was a member of the quite famous Chamberlains of getting in Suffolk. But anyway, our home's very existence is based on the gruesome demise of Sir Edward's father, who was executed for treason by Henry VII in 1491, inside the tower, by the way, due to his involvement in the Perkin-Warburg rebellion. And as it always was the case with families accused of treason, all the family's assets were confiscated, except for a little bit of land with an earlier timber-framed house here in Barnum Broom, on which then Sir Edward built a modest manor with the dowry of his wife Jane Starkey. So again, It all started with the women and their (laughs) money. Anyway, from that time, we still have parts of the even earlier moat that once encircled the whole property and the surviving southern wing of the house with its beautiful diaper brickwork. And there's also still the original minstrel gallery window from the Great Hall that you can see from that really early beginning. And under young Henry VIII, times for the Chamberlains here at Broom started to look more promising again. So on the 11th of March, 1531, Henry VIII granted Sir Edward a reversal of his father's attainder, but still without the restitution of property. However, this appears to be a more prosperous time when the manor was enlarged and also improved. The still existing porch tower, that we can still see, was added. And it's also most likely that The great chamber was altered too. It seems it was during this period that the progressively old-fashioned deemed great hall was lowered, the ceiling was lowered, and it received an extra floor to provide more sleeping facilities for the growing family. Uh, so Edward did have, have quite a large family. And the beautiful large window in which I am uh, sitting now, and it is still catching people's attention, was put in, and the former minis- minstrel galleries window was partially filled in in the process. But from the outside, you can still see it. One very rare feature in a domestic setting we share with the well-known Halvington Hall in Worcestershire is a particularly interesting original wall painting showing the Catholic pattern known as the Tears of Christ. Now, ours date to 1560 to 1570, when Father Richard Chamberlain, Sir Edward grandson, resided at the hall as the acting priest to the local church. Now, Father Richard was an ordained Catholic priest, and therefore, mistakenly, it's assumed that the family had been recousents but it's far more surprising that it appears uh, that they have been church papists. So basically Catholics who served an Anglian parish to avoid recusancy fines. But at home, behind closed doors, they served the old religion. And hey, what better disguise to remain a practicing Catholic but stay totally undetected here in Norfolk, a Catholic stronghold under the very watchful eye of Elizabeth. Now we can jump a little bit into 1614 when Sir Edward Chamberlain's great-grandson, by the same name, they were all called Edward, which is so confusing. But anyway, he had the North thing modernised or potentially totally rebuilt. It's hard to tell. Uh, He wanted to facilitate space on the first floor for an impressive parlour with... The most amazing ceiling you can imagine, and it's still there. Now, Edward was a barrister, and he used this room to hold court, hence the agricultural opulence. Now, once again, the building project was funded by his wife's dowry. Now, sadly, Edward died soon after leaving the hall to his underage son, Again, another Edward. Now, the estate was increasingly struggling to survive financially since the death of the very first Edward, who divided his property equally amongst all his male children. Now, to us, it seems pretty much the right and normal thing to do. But then, such a step, was not only very unusual, but also very risky. A small estate like this made its income from rents paid by tenant farmers on the land by splitting up the estate amongst his three sons. Each parcel of the estate had become too small to solely survive on rents only. Now, George, the second son who inherited this hall, had to become a gentleman farmer himself to make ends meet. He also had to fight endless financial battles with the very crook Alderman in Norwich, which almost bankrupted him. But by the time George's grandson Edward had died, the already diminished family fortunes started to dwindle even more. Uh, in times of political or religious times of unrest, the Chamberlains sadly always seemed to have backed the losers <laughs> wherever they had taken a side. And such choices carry financial penalties and losses. And sadly, by 1665, the manor of Barnum Broom was sold to the neighbouring estate. In the process, the house was reduced to its new name, the Old Hall. It no longer was Barnum Broom Hall, it was now the Old Hall and the new owners, the Woodhouse family of Kimberley Hall, used the former manor Broom, as a vicarage and then a house for farming tenants. Now, this resulted in several changes of the interior layout and corridors were created, smaller fireplaces inserted into earlier ones. There is also evidence of new doorways hacked out of the main exterior wall and large windows being filled. The house had to serve the purpose of housing labourers cheaply and no money was spent on luxury or fashionable changes. But the silver lining here is that this has also saved it from demolition and trendy rebuilding to suit new architectural fashions. And during the 19th century, the story continued as a residence for farming families, but there never was any money for making life more comfortable, and everything had to be maintained and repaired. So during the early part of the 20th century, the house was not lived in. And that wasn't good news. It was used for storage by a local farmer. This was probably the most destructive period where the roof developed leaks and water was allowed in. So it is a miracle that the precious parlour ceiling survived, mostly unharmed. And after World War II, a number of preservation societies sought buyers for the old hall due to its historic importance. However, due to its really sad state of repair and sweeping death duties to be paid on such properties, it was not until 1963 that a young, financially quite well-off family, purchased the house and was prepared to invest in its restoration. Unfortunately, the rescue came too late for some south-facing parts of the building. And after 10 years pouring money into the restoration of the house, the coffers were empty (laughs) and the house was put up for sale again. This time it was bought by another lawyer, uh, who lived here with his family for 40 years, from which we then purchased the house. But unfortunately, as we are now discovering, some of the work that had been done in that time was carried out unsympathetically and probably by was take, undertaken by untrained people who, with their shoddy work in the process of repair and restoration, Actually, caused more damage in the long long run. So, since two thousand and twenty one and November, we have been putting this right. A long, stressful, and extremely painful, painful, uh, and expensive process, and hopefully, will not destroy us. <laughs> as it has done to other well-meaning people before us.
0: That is an extraordinary history. (laughs) To know all of that about your house is just, I think it's incredible. But yes, I I know that it's a very challenging task that you've taken on as well. I want to know a little bit more about how you came to own this particular property. Why is it that you were in the market for a Tudor house? Well, that's fate again. (laughs) Back
1: in 2018, a year after my husband had suffered a cardiac arrest, this house popped up on his computer screen. So totally out of the blue, as we had no intention of selling our home in Hertfordshire then. Well, behind my back, he did make a booking to see the house, because obviously, you know, I was the sensible one saying, oh, no, we don't need that stress now. He... One day it said to me, I'm going to see it. Do you want to stay or come? Well, obviously I came (laughs) and it was love at first sight. I had never, ever experienced anything like this. Even before we entered the house, we felt we had come home. So we put our home in Hertfordshire on the market. And yes, our children declared us insane. (laughs) My parents too, probably. And we had to take out a second mortgage because we could move our first property quickly enough, thanks to COVID. Um, but we did move in here in November 2019 with the prospect of opening it to the public by April 2020. We did have one experience with the Tudor Travel Guide in Sarah Morris here in August 2021 which was just absolutely amazing and we also were able to run two open days with historic houses before things came to a hold <laughs> with the unscheduled long
0: restoration work Yes, I know that you've been you've been restoring it for so long now, and I hope that it's <laughs> winding down for you at some point. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of main things? So you mentioned the the leaky roof earlier. What are the sort of main things that the restoration journey has involved?
1: Well, what started with just wanting to replace some superficial, vintage, wrapped, or warped plasterboards uncovered layers of serious trouble, and we are talking serious trouble. That is damage caused by water, rainwater, penetrating slowly, almost unnoticed, but rotting away, weight-bearing joists and rafters. So since autumn 2021, we have been making the house just safe. So nothing to make it look nice and pretty, it's just making the house safe, stopping it from collapsing, stopping from floor or giving way, ceilings coming down. And it is a bit heartbreaking to see so much money going into repair work that no Nobody will ever be able to appreciate, but uh, it's it's just necessary. It has to be done in the correct way, unlike previous <laughs> repair work, and that is very tedious. It takes a long time, and we just have to be patient and carry on finding funds to see it to the end. Buying an old house is always extremely risky, even if it appears in perfect order when you visit, as we did. And uh, even surveyors would not have been able to see the damage that was lurking behind floorboards and rafters and so on. So it is extremely risky, but, you know, some people thrive on it.
0: <laughs> yes. And so would you say that's the biggest challenge with owning an and historic property, that it's the things you can't see that might be there lurking beneath the lovely plasterboard? <laughs> if you ask my husband, he probably
1: would say finding the huge funds yes. that are necessary yeah. to upkeep the repair and the maintenance is the biggest challenge. And it's definitely the most stressful one, that has to be said. But it, it's even... Daily, regular things like uh, clearing the gutters and uh, cleaning the windows twice a week involves having to put up scaffolding. So that's not cheap, you know. <laughs> and there's always this worry of what will go wrong next. And so planning financially for the future is really difficult and quite stressful, you know, because you always have to expect the unexpected. For instance, uh, three days ago, I had a friend stay here. And while she stayed in the guest bedroom that we had just finished, or I thought I had finished, bits of the wall came down. (laughs) Luckily, she was out uh, at that time. But the builders came and said, you know, we need to go into this room and have a look what happened. Yeah, and it was just, again, dodgy work carried out by previous builders, and it gave way. It all of a sudden just decided, no, it's just a bit of filling in plaster, and that collapsed. So it wasn't a big deal, but yeah, it made it very obvious Brilliant. why we can't entertain too many people here at the moment. That's just My goodness. <laughs>
0: Goodness me, but you said when you first saw the house, it was love at first sight and you're still yeah. there. You're still there persevering with yeah. all of this. So oh, yeah. clearly you you love the house. So what is it about owning the old hall that you love?
1: Besides all the trouble, continued stress, <laughs> my husband is still alive. <laughs> if you're somebody who loves living with history, there is just no better feeling than being able to rescue a Tudor Manor house for the future to actively become part of its long history it's second to none it's just pure magic and neither one of us regret having started this journey we probably in you know people always ask in hindsight would you still buy it And the answer is no, we wouldn't, because at the time, if we had known just how much money is needed, we would have said, no, we haven't got that sort of money. We haven't got it. We can't do it. But you always somehow find money. You start selling assets you have. You you ask parents uh, for your birthday to... help paying for plasterboards (laughs) rather than a nice gift. Yeah, so you do, but um, you know, for some people it's the right thing to do, and we we feel honoured to make this our legacy
0: yes it's wonderful work that you're doing obviously for future generations and how wonderful that when 200 years into the future someone tells the story again and the history that you'll be part of it i think that's just absolutely amazing so Brigitte, you live in a in an area that has so much history obviously so what are some of the other sort of must-see places that you would recommend for people visiting
1: well norfolk and in particular norwich They are both exceptionally rich in Tudor history, one of the things that attracted us to this area. Now, after all, Norwich was England's second largest city in Tudor England, and it still holds the claim to England's most Tudor city and of particular interest for Tudor fanatics. Uh, I would say, Elm Hill, Strangers Hall, and, of course, the Cathedral. And outside Norwich, you have, have Walsingham. And, of course, there is Blickling Hall, the estate where Anne Boleyn grew up. But it has to be said that most of the house, as you see now, is uh, or slightly later. But it still gives you a good feeling of the beauty around that area.
0: It's a wonderful area. I was recently there, actually, and I had no idea that I was right next to your house, Brigitte. Isn't that terrible? We could have seen each other. Yeah, you were about half an hour from us. Just me, and I had (laughs) no idea. (laughs) Yeah, next Next time. time, Next time, it's okay. Um, So you've obviously talked about the fact that you had a couple of events before things got quite complicated at the hall. Is the hope that once all this, you know, the house is secure and safe for people, that you will again, open your doors and invite people to enjoy the magic of the property.
1: Very much so. Indeed, it's it's one of the main things that keeps us going and to remain focused. It's unbelievable how many people contact me all the time to say, can we come and stay? It's really sad that I have to turn them down at the moment and say, sorry, it's just really because it is officially a building site. I mean, we obviously live here, friends and family come, so it is safe enough, but for paying guests, I'm afraid they will have to wait until it is completed, which hopefully, fingers crossed, will be the end of uh, next year, or early 2025. But it will be worth it. And I am living this dream every day that my guests will be able to walk back into history, eat Tudor food, sleep in true Tudor beds, uh, walk through the Tudor gardens, and really soak up. Tudor history on a daily basis or as long as they uh, stay because I think I would love it and there must be plenty of other people who (laughs) see that as the epitome of a Tudor holiday.
0: (laughs) Oh you've got one right in front of you here put me down on the waiting (laughs) list I want to be the first one in when you open up and and you mentioned Tudor food there so do you want to quickly tell us about your new book? Yes
1: eating with the Tudors is a finally coming out on July the 30th here in Britain and America, I think it was mid-October. But I, I can't believe it because it's been such a long journey with, again, so many ups and downs and being a first-time writer, many who are in a, in a similar position probably can share my excitement <laughs> about this moment actually coming true. So yes, I still have to think about where I'm going to launch it. But it it feels not quite real enough to have sorted that, but it will, I'm sure. Oh, that's,
0: that's so exciting. Congratulations. I cannot wait to read it. And I'm hoping to lure you back to the podcast later on to talk more about Tudor food and your book specifically. But Brigitte, this has been so lovely. The last thing I want to ask you is for a Tudor takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode.
1: Yeah, there is actually a lovely TV series back from 2018. It was by Alice Roberts, and she's taking people through Britain and finding the most historic cities. Now, episode number four, I believe, is about Tudor Norwich. And it's definitely one I can recommend. It's very educational. It gives you lots of little insights. And there was obviously another one by Susanna Lipscomb, Walking Tudor, England, which has another episode dedicated to Norfolk. And I feature in it as well. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, so there are two TV programs that focus on Norwich and Tudor history that I can both recommend.
0: Oh, well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. And thank you again for taking the time out of what is a very busy schedule to talk tutors with us.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always such a delight and such joy. I love being here.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tutors. The behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail, and on Instagram as the Most Happy Seventy-Eight. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.